Well, today we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And if you recall, last Lord's Day, we made mention of the fact that Pastor Inro would be out of town this week. So it has fallen on me to preach back to back. And in light of that, I have decided to tackle John 14, uh, verses 15 through, through 31 in two parts. And in doing so, I also made mention of the fact that in these closing verses of chapter 14, there are two main points of emphasis that we can draw from this text. First, there is the emphasis on obedience. And secondly, there is then the promise of the Holy Spirit. Well, last Lord's Day, we spent all our time basically on that first point. Given that we live in a culture today where obedience and law-keeping are not only frowned upon outside of the church, but also very much misunderstood and dis distorted within the church, I thought it would be good, uh, good to spend some time on the role of God's law for the Christian today. So that's what we did last Lord's Day. Now, most of what we observed last Lord's Day came from outside of John chapter 14. And essentially what I did was I took verse 15 and launched from there into a lesson about the usefulness of the law for the Christian today. Verse 15 reads, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's plain just from the very face of it that law keeping, commandment keeping is essential to the Christian faith. That said, we need to rightly understand the role that the law has for us. Many Christians have failed to think, think through these things carefully and as a result have made obedience or law keeping unnecessary for the Christian today. But again, based on the clear teaching of Jesus here in chapter 14, that simply is not the case. And so we spent some time in our confession in larger catechism last week explaining rightly the role of the law for the believer. Now, I'm not going to preach that sermon all over again today, but to summarize, we noted this. We noted that in order to rightly understand the numerous New Testament texts that appear to diminish the law, we read phrases like, we are released from the law, or you are not under the law, but under grace. We have to place the law within a broader covenantal context, which the Westminster standards rightly do. And so many, and many Christian teachers do not, largely because they ignore the Old Testament or do not properly understand it. And so let me just highlight a few key points from last week. First, we noted that in the beginning, there in the Garden of Eden, God made a covenant with man, which we typically call the covenant of works. Listen to how our confession puts it. And listen closely to the role that the law plays at this point. Our confession says that God gave to, to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him in all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. So you see that in this first covenant, Adam as an innocent, righteous man was required to obey the law perfectly to secure life. He was not obeying the law in order to gain salvation from sins because at this point, Adam was not a sinner. He had not fallen. This covenant with Adam was established in his state of innocence. 
But then came the fall of man. When Adam sinned and broke this covenant of works, the moral law still remained the moral law. It still remained a standard of righteousness. The law did not change, but what did change was man's relationship to that law. Man's rebellion, and now in his fallen nature, makes him incapable of obtaining life through that covenant by adhering to the law. Well, after man's rebellion, God could have just left man in his fallen state and condemned all of man to hell, and that had been that. But by his mercy and grace, he established a second covenant, which we often call the covenant of grace. And in this covenant, God freely offers sinners life and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And fourth, despite these changes in covenants, the moral law still remained a perfect rule of righteousness. That never changed. The moral law still continues to be a standard for all people. However, and here's the very important point, in this second covenant, the law was given to us, fallen sinful creatures, not as a covenant of works, as it was given originally. That is, in this second covenant, the law is not given to us who are now fallen, sinful, depraved sinners as our means to being justified before God through our personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. And why is that? Because it's impossible for us as fallen, sinful creatures to accomplish that. As Isaiah states, our righteousness is as filthy rags. There is no good in us. And that leads us to our fifth point, Christ's fulfillment of the law. Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And believers are delivered from the law as a covenant of works and are justified by grace through faith in Christ's perfect obedience on our behalf. And that said, there still remains a use of the law for believers. Our sixth and last point in the confession, again, wonderfully summarizes this when it states, Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and of their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby they may come to farther conviction of humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show that what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it, in like manner, show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect from the performance thereof, although not as due to them by the law as the covenant of works. So as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourages to the one and deterreth from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. So you see in summary... Our standards emphasize the unchanging nature of God's moral law while highlighting the shift in our relationship that took place to that law due to Adam's rebellion. 
and through the different covenants. We are freed from the law as a means of justification, but we are to obey it out of gratitude for Christ's fulfillment of it, and we are to conform our life to it as a rule of life. Hence, Jesus says here, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that summarizes what we heard last week. Today, we're going to go back to our text here in John 14. And now we will look at the promise of the Holy Spirit. And unlike last week, I'll actually spend more time in the text itself here. So first, let's read it. Again, this is John 14. We'll start in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who, who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them afraid. Let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much, much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this most holy day this means of grace. Now may you open our eyes and ears to your word here in John 14. May you teach and enlighten us by your spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of the most distressing and challenging experiences we may encounter in life is the feeling of isolation, the feeling of being deserted. And throughout history, saints have grappled with this in various ways. To illustrate the point, during Israel's monarchy, the prophet Elijah lamented to God. Paul makes reference to this in Romans 11, where quoting Elijah, he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Here Elijah believed he was completely alone in his faith. 
And I imagine that each of you at some point felt in some way or another lonely or perhaps even deserted by God. Likewise, it's probable that the disciples here were starting to experience a similar sense of isolation. As they listened to Jesus speak about his impending departure, they likely began to sense the impending abandonment. Well, here in John 14, Jesus provides comfort and assurance to his disciples by proclaiming that regardless of their emotional state, and despite the fact that he would eventually leave them with respect to his human nature, they are not being abandoned. And this in itself carries a very important lesson for us. We must ensure that our feelings do not override everything else. It's essential to prioritize the truth, allowing the truth of God's word to govern our emotions and ensuring that our feelings align with it. And as we delve into this section today, we will also find reassurance that if we are true believers, God is genuinely with us at all times. There is never a moment when we are alone. So let's dig into this a little bit. As we have already noted, this section begins with Jesus explaining the connection between loving him and obeying his commands. He expresses this connection by stating that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, looking back to chapter 13, we recall a powerful illustration of Jesus' love for his disciples when he washed their feet. And following this act of love, he instructed them to reciprocate this love by serving one another in a similar manner. Well, now here in chapter 14, Jesus teaches that the love he has for his followers elicits a reciprocal love from them. As we find elsewhere in scripture, we love because he first loved us. Our love for him is a response to his love for us. And it's essential to recognize that in the Bible, love is not merely a sentiment. Here in this passage, Jesus firmly links love with obedience. Love for Christ is demonstrated through obedience to Christ. And Jesus repeats this concept multiple times here in this chapter, as we noted last week. But furthermore, when considering this, we should keep in mind the context in which Jesus delivers these words, particularly what he conveyed back in verses 12 through 14. In those verses, Jesus assured his disciples that they would perform even greater works than he had done and promised them that they would receive whatever they asked him for in his name. And it's noteworthy that immediately after this, Jesus then begins discussing the importance of loving and obeying him. So we got to ask the question, what's the link between verses 15 and following with verses 12 through 14? I think D.A. Carson hits it on the nail well. He says regarding verse 15, he writes, two links tie this verse to what precedes. One, the prospect of doing greater things anticipates the need for enabling power, the manifestation of God himself by his spirit. This verse is moving the discussion toward verses 16 through 17. And secondly, the obedience theme is of a peace with asking for things in Jesus' name. None of the promised fruitfulness will come to those who think that they can manipulate the exalted Christ or use him for their own ends. 
End quote. Calvin writes in a similar manner, the love with which the disciples loved Christ was true and sincere, and yet there was some superstition mixed with it, as is frequently the case with ourselves. For it was very foolish in them to wish to keep him in the world. To correct this fault, he bids them to direct their love to another end, and that is to employ themselves in keeping the commandments which he had given them. This is undoubtedly a useful doctrine, for of those who think they love Christ, there are very few who honor him as they ought to do. But on the contrary, after having performed small and trivial services, they give themselves no farther concern. The true love of Christ, on the other hand, is regulated by the observation of his doctrine as the only rule. But we are likewise reminded how sinful our affections are, since even the love which we bear to Christ is not without fault, if it be not directed to a pure obedience." End quote. And so Jesus also establishes here a link between our obedient love and our continual experience of communion with God. He expresses this connection in verse, 15, uh, verse 16 by stating, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now we'll talk about that term helper here in a minute, but a similar idea emerges in verse 21 where Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, it might seem as though Jesus is suggesting in both these verses that our love and our obedience are what lead to God dwelling in communion with us. However, this interpretation would conflict with many earlier teachings that we have seen in this gospel. Particularly how it is, is that it is God who takes the initiative in drawing us to himself, and it is God who ensures our perseverance to the end. If you recall, we've dealt with these two concepts already multiple times in this gospel. We heard, for example, in chapter 6, Jesus say, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here, both ideas are expressed. God initiates our salvation, and it is God who preserves us to the end. And so what Jesus is teaching here in chapter 14 should not be understood to mean that our obedience earns us the privilege of God's abiding presence. Instead, we should interpret it as saying that our love and obedience are the natural outcomes of a genuine saving faith. Our love and our obedience are the outcome. They are not the cause of our living in communion with God. However, we can also assert that it is through our obedience to Christ that we nurture and sustain our experience of communion with him. Friends, it's simple. If you neglect the things Jesus commands you to do, or if you engage in those things that he forbids, it's reasonable to say that subjectively your communion with Christ will be adversely affected. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If a believer persists in sin, the Spirit will wither his comfort. And now let's turn our attention to verse 16, where Jesus pledges to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples. 
In doing so, he uses an interesting term here to describe the Holy Spirit. The Greek is parakletos. The ESV translates it here as helper. And this word helper can be translated in various ways, depending on what translation you have. Your Bible may say advocate or comforter. Translating it as advocate is probably the most fitting. And it's worth noting here also that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as another helper. In other words, the Spirit assumes a role similar to the one that Jesus has for his followers. In fact, the same Greek word is used in reference to Jesus in 1 John 2.1, where John describes Jesus as our advocate with the Father. Now, for whatever reason, the ESV translates it here as advocate in 1 John, but then it translates the same Greek word as helper in John 14. But again, it's the same word in Greek. And so both Jesus and the Holy Spirit serve as helpers or advocates. Now, what does the Bible intend when it uses this term? One issue with translating it as helper is that it may suggest to you that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are simply here to assist you in achieving your own goals, to aid you in accomplishing whatever it is you want to do with your life. However, that's not the true meaning of the word here. In ancient Greek, this term was used even outside of the Bible to describe someone who acted as a legal counsel or a supportive witness in a trial. Therefore, an advocate was someone who came to your aid to defend you and to provide support and reinforcement. This is the underlining image here. So when we say that Jesus is our advocate, we mean that he is the advocate who has completed everything necessary for our redemption. And then after ascending to heaven, even then he continues to serve as our advocate, representing us in the courts of heaven. And what's truly remarkable about this passage here in John 14 is that it not only reveals that we have an advocate in heaven, but also one here on the earth. Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to be the advocate who strengthens and supports us while we are physically separated from Christ. Again, Calvin writes, Christ was the protector of his disciples so long as he dwelt in the world. And afterwards, he committed them to the protection and guardianship of the Spirit. It may be asked, are we not still under the protection of Christ? And the answer is easy. Christ is the continual protector, but not in a visible way. So long as he dwelt in the world, he openly manifested himself as their protector. But now he guards us by his Spirit. Also, take note from here. Jesus mentions that the Spirit is a helper who will be with us forever. He will never depart from us. And this provides tremendous reassurance, assuring us that regardless of how, how isolated we may feel at any given moment, we are never truly alone. If we are true believers, the Spirit of God is forever present to assist us, to, to support us, to sustain us, and to advocate for us. Also note in these verses that Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. 
He does so because the Spirit's primary role is to bear witness to the truth, which is ultimately embodied in Jesus himself. As we saw previously in verse 6, earlier in this chapter, Jesus is described as the way, the truth, and the life. Beloved, one of the most valuable gifts that God has bestowed upon us is truth. Divine revelation, divine truth. This truth gives us knowledge about God himself, about humanity, about the nature of time and eternity, about life and death, about the origins and ultimate fulfillment of all things, about judgment, salvation, heaven, and hell. In a world filled with falsehoods, lies, and everyone's ever-changing subjective opinions, we don't even, we can't even tell you what a woman is anymore in this world. God has given us truth. God, as described in Exodus 34, 6, abounds in truth to the extent that he's even frequently referred to as the God of truth in the Old Testament. In Psalm 119, 142, it says, Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. And in Psalm 119, 151, But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. And throughout his ministry, Jesus consistently presented the truth. Every word he spoke was grounded in truth, even prompting his enemies to sarcastically acknowledge, we know that you always speak the truth. And now as he is preparing to depart here in John 14, he will send the spirit of truth to inspire the biblical writers to record the truth, which will be contained in the word of God and entrusted to the church which serves as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Jesus also points out to us that the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. The reason for this inability lies in the world's disbelief in Jesus as the embodiment of God's truth. We can also observe that the world remains ignorant of the spirit because it is deeply entrenched in materialism primarily concerned with worldly matters in this earthly life alone. Paul would go on to write later in 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in, in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You see, friends, while the world does not come to know God through its wisdom, on the contrary, every true believer receives and knows the Spirit this presence of the Spirit becomes a distinguishing characteristic of the Christian life, setting believers apart from the rest of the world. Now, as you think about that, consider it in what other ways you differ from the people of the world. Is it because you never sin? Well, that can't be the case. We all sin. I sin, you sin. However, when we do sin, the Spirit convicts us of our wrongdoing. He instills repentance in our hearts and renews our faith so that we place our trust in Christ. Well, is it the distinction between you and the world that you never worry, or that you never have doubts, or that you never face trials? Well, that can't be the case either, because we go through many challenges just like everyone else does. Yet the Spirit ensures that we are not overwhelmed by these trials. He sustains us through them. Are we different from the world in that we don't die? Again, that's not true. Eventually, like everyone else in this world, you will face death. We all will. However, the Spirit unites us with Christ in such a profound way that not even death can separate us from our Savior. In fact, in a remarkable twist of things, death is compelled to serve our ultimate benefit because its sting has been removed for us. When we die, our souls are perfected and we join Jesus in glory while our bodies, even though lifeless, lifeless, remain connected to Christ and will be resurrected when he returns. And so once again, it's the presence of the Spirit in your life that sets you apart from the people of this world. Well, then, after discussing the role of the Spirit, Jesus proceeds to assure his disciples that he will not forsake them. He comforts them with these words in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Now, let's stop for a moment and consider the significance of the term orphans. Think about what it means to be an orphan. An orphan is completely alone in the world without anyone to watch over him, to care for him, to protect him. They are exceptionally vulnerable. And so this idea serves here as an illustration of our spiritual state when we are separated from Jesus Christ. In the ultimate sense, fallen humanity is utterly alone in the world and lacks any hope, primarily because they are not in communion with the living God. And the disciples here, as portrayed in the Gospels, likely experienced a similar sense of abandonment after Jesus' death. 
They felt a deep despair as if everything had turned bleak, mirroring the darkened sky when Jesus hung on the cross. However, it's important to note that they didn't yet grasp the full picture. We know that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples, bridging that sense of abandonment. And moreover, after he ascended to heaven, he sends his spirit to them. And then ultimately on the last day, he will return in glory to fulfill and complete our redemption. And then following Jesus' statement about not leaving his disciples orphans, John mentions that a disciple named Judas, not Iscariot, was puzzled by Jesus' words. Judas wondered how it would be possible for Jesus to manifest himself to them, but not to the rest of the world. Now, it's reasonable to assume that the unfolding events were a complete surprise to the disciples. They had never anticipated that Jesus would die on the cross. Even after his resurrection, we see in Acts chapter 1, they still did not fully comprehend that Jesus would ascend to heaven and send his spirit to empower his church in its mission to gather and nurture all of Christ's followers. And yet, nevertheless, that's precisely what Jesus did and continues to do. He advances his kingdom in this world, but it's a process that's discernible primarily through the eyes of faith. And so Jesus explains to Judas that even now in this present age, both he and the Father will come to true believers and establish their dwelling with them. And that occurs, as Carson noted, within the circle of love that displays itself in obedience to the Son's teaching. Another thing we can know here, if you recall, this sounds a little different than what we heard earlier in this chapter. If you go back up to verse 2, you recall that Jesus informed his disciples that he was departing to prepare a place for them in his Father's heavenly house. He mentioned that he wouldn't be in that place or that they wouldn't be in that place until he returned at the end of the age. However, in the verses that we've just discussed, Jesus presents it differently. He tells us that both he and the Father will now come and make their dwelling in us during this present age. And so even though we must wait until Christ's second coming to be in the place he has prepared for us in our Father's heavenly house, even now our God presently comes to us in this age and he establishes his home with us, within us. And how is this possible? It's possible because of what Jesus mentioned earlier in verse 16, where he speaks of sending the helper, the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's work in our lives that makes this indwelling possible. The Spirit comes to us and prepares a place for Jesus and the Father in our hearts. It is the Spirit who effectually calls us, regenerates us, and unites us with Christ, the Father, and himself. And this is what has happened to you today if you are a true believer. Through the mutual indwelling of the three persons of the Godhead, the triune God through the Spirit has come to you and has taken up residence within you. And this provides us with reassurance that we will never, ever be alone again. And even as incredible as this experience is, it's just a glimpse of what awaits us at the end of this age. As John would describe in Revelation 21, 
On that day, a voice will proclaim from the throne, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. But even now, beloved, from this text, we catch a small taste of this in our present lives. And we will experience more fully it in the life to come. Well, in the latter part of our passage, Jesus then explains the instructional role played by the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. He tells his disciples that the Spirit will teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that he has said to them. These words have a specific application to disciples, but they can also apply to Christians of all ages. However, considering the immediate context for the disciples, this meant that the Holy Spirit would ensure the faithfulness and accuracy of their apostolic testimony to Christ. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that the apostles served as the critical link between the redemption that was accomplished by Christ in history and then the proclamation that would follow later. The Spirit empowered them and ensured the absence of error in their testimony. Hence, the reason why you walk around today with a Bible in your hand. But furthermore, the Holy Spirit also serves as our teacher of God's people today. And in being our teacher, he doesn't provide any new revelations, as there's no need for further revelation now that Christ has come and has spoken his final word through Christ. But the Spirit does, however, open our eyes and our ears so that we can truly perceive the word of God. He helps us recognize that the Bible is God's living and active word, and he causes that word to bear fruit in our lives. We see this reflected in our standards in numerous places, most notably in the first chapter where it states, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. You see, beloved, he's our teacher. And this here is often referred to as the Holy Spirit's illumination. And while it is true that God certainly uses human teachers, such as pastors, that's why you're here today, to explain and imply his, uh, his word, it is ultimately the Holy Spirit who enables us to receive that word, not as the words of men, but as the word of God. And so he remains our teacher even to us today. And then in verse 27, Jesus speaks of a parting gift that he is leaving for his church. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now this word peace here holds great significance in the Bible. It's not like we use it today, like, you know, peace out. 
This is this was a customary Jewish greeting and embodies one of the fundamental aspects of the messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament. That it would be a kingdom characterized by complete peace. When Jesus said he gives peace differently than the world, he means that his gift of peace is not mere wishful thinking or some utopian dream, both of which often fail to bring true peace. Try as we might, lasting peace, whether personal, relational, or political, remains elusive. However, when Jesus bestows peace upon his church, he can generally confer it due to the victory he has achieved on the cross, and he can accomplish what the world cannot. Again, Calvin writes, by the word peace, he means prosperity, which men are wont to wish for each other when they meet or part. For such is the import of the word peace in the Hebrew language. He therefore alludes to the ordinary custom of his nation, as if he had said, I leave you my farewell. But he immediately adds that this peace is of far greater value than that which is usually to be found among men, who generally have the word peace, but coldly in their mouth by way of ceremony, or if they sincerely wish peace for anyone, yet cannot actually bestow it. But Christ reminds them that his peace does not consist in an empty and unavailing wish, but is accompanied by the effect. In short, he says that he goes away from them in body, but that his peace remains with the disciples, that is, that they will all they will be always happy through his blessing. And so after speaking of the gift of peace, Jesus then shifts his focus back to his departure. He mentions that he is going to the Father. And here he adds a statement that can be misconstrued and has been by many people. Jesus says that the Father is greater than I. Now this statement has been used by groups like the Jehovah Witnesses to argue that Jesus is not fully God, that he is somehow subordinate to God. However, such an argument isolates this verse from the broader context of the Bible and other passages within God, uh, John's gospel. We've already seen this as we've been studying this gospel. We have seen Jesus described as the creator God. He's identified as God. He's honored just as the Father is honored, and he even states that I and the Father are one. And so to resolve the apparent t tension between verse 28 and these other passages, we must consider the specific context. Jesus here is referring to his state of humiliation, not to his essential nature. When Jesus became man, he concealed the glory of his divine nature under his human nature, making him appear humble and unremarkable to us. And in this chapter, as Jesus is about to return to his state of glory with the Father, this is what he is addressing. Thus, his disciples should be happy for him because it's better for Jesus to be in his glorious state than in, his, than in his humble incarnational state. As the passage concludes, Jesus explains that his time to speak to his disciples about these things is running out now because the ruler of this world is coming. The ruler of this world is a phrase we've encountered before in his gospel, and it unequivocally refers to Satan. Satan, who has orchestrated the plots culminating in Jesus' death, even entering Judas to portray him, 
Therefore, Satan is, in a sense, the ruler of this fallen world, this fallen system, reminding us that all unredeemed individuals are slaves under his oppressive rule. So Calvin reminds us that contemplating this should humble us as all unregenerate individuals are under Satan's dominion until they are regenerated by the Spirit of Christ. Nonetheless, while Satan is the ruler of this fallen world, Jesus clarifies that Satan has no real authority or power over him. And this is because Jesus never sinned and Satan has no claim on him. And yet Jesus willingly subjected himself to what was about to transpire at the hands of those influenced by demonic forces. And he did this out of obedience to his father and his deep love for him. And so this reaffirms that Jesus loves his father perfectly and expresses his love through perfect obedience. So in conclusion, it would indeed be a dreadful situation to be left alone in this world ruled by Satan. But our Lord has not abandoned us. He hasn't left us as helpless orphans. He has come to us. The Spirit of God dwells within every true believer. And when the Spirit resides in your heart, He provides a place for the other members of the Trinity as well. This really, truly is a remarkable thing to ponder and think about. And while you may intellectually know it and hear me saying it, how often do you really ponder this in your heart? That the triune God, the creator, the sustainer of the universe who upholds all things has made his home with you and will never leave you. He has invited you into the eternal fellowship among the members of the Godhead, a fellowship that can never be broken. And so rest assured, you will never be alone. And thus you have no reason to be troubled or afraid. Ground yourself in this truth. Prioritize this truth so that this is what governs your feelings and your emotions. Let's pray.